morning, church family. Uh, man, it's great to be here. And welcome to the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's Day here at Evergreen SUV. And uh, I just want to tell you, you know, what a privilege it is to preach the word. And uh, we're praying that you will see Christ today. You have a clear picture of Jesus. And so um, this is what we're about. We're about Christ. We're about knowing him more. We're about becoming like him, loving him more. So this is why we preach the Bible, so that we learn more about our Lord. The one that we say we trust in eternity. This is the one that we trust to take care of us for eternity. So hopefully these six or seven verses will give us greater confidence in who he is. So please pray with me before we get into the sermon. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. I just thank you for Evergreen SGV. Thank you for the privilege of being here, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray your word will be preached. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will understand what you're saying through the scripture so that we will know your son more. We want to know Jesus more. We want to know your son more. By knowing Jesus, we know you more. So Holy Spirit, I pray you allow us to see clearly, soften our hearts so that we will treasure Jesus Christ more. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this passage in John. I pray, Lord, that John 15, 12 through 17 will just be illuminating in our hearts and minds throughout the week, and that we'll have a greater confidence in who you are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to kind of get to John 15 rather quickly today, but just a little bit of context. Context is critical as we're learning in Pastor David's uh, uh, hermeneutics class and, or biblical interpretation class. So this is the scene again. Once again, this is the scene. Jesus is setting the stage for the disciples because Jesus, maybe within the hour, is going to be arrested. He's going to be arrested, and within hours he'll be tried and, and executed on the cross. And then within hours, the world will come after the disciples. So Jesus is basically working from the inside out. Any good uh, team builder, any good coach always builds from within. The focus is always the team first, the family first. And then whatever comes, comes. But let's make sure we know who we are, what we could count on. So the last week's sermon, Jesus talked about how we could count on our relationship. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and the Father is in you. The same love that the Father has loved me, I love, I love you. I mean, this is crazy. This type of truth is just outstanding. And so as we think about it, Jesus is saying, you know what? We have a relationship with one another, with the church, as every Christian, with Jesus himself. Today, Jesus is now focusing on building up the relationship with one another. Because Jesus knows in a few moments, he's physically not going to be with the disciples. And from that moment on, just like it is 2020, we don't see Jesus in the physical, but we have one another, right? And so he's trying to shore up the genuine relationship between the disciples, because think about it. One of the disciples, a false disciple, Judas, just defected. And disciples are wondering, is this a real thing that I'm a part of? So Jesus is saying, teaching them to build up that relationship with one another, that we count on one another. Disciples, true disciples, count and rely on one another. And so John 15, 12 through 17 is, is like a high point on fellowship. We're talking about what genuine Christian fellowship is about. 
Okay, so please rise. We'll be at a John 15, 12 through 17. I read out the NASB version. John 15, this is God's word. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know where he, what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all, the, all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I... But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Verse 17. This I commanded you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Let us treasure your word. Let us treasure your word. I pray we'll be like the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation all the day. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So I have a question here. What makes the church unified or one? Just like Jesus is trying to unify the disciples, what makes the church, the body of Christ, universally and locally here at Evergreen should be one, unified? Because the more unified we are, the more faithful we can be. Because we're going to help each other stay faithful to the task. The word that comes to mind is fellowship. And many of us have heard what fellowship is and heard that word, perhaps. And the original language is called koinonia. Many of us, perhaps, have heard that Greek word. And this word carries the meaning of shared or common, sharing a common identity, sharing a common enterprise. We do the same things, in other words. We have close involvement with one another. Fellowship. We have mutual respect for one another because we're about the same things. Fellowship. David Wells, in one of the books I've been reading, a theologian writes and describes the power of fellowship in, in his book. If we were to look for a single word that captures this thought of what makes the church one or unified, as Jesus asked in his prayer, it is fellowship. This is a word, though, that has mostly lost its biblical meaning today. When we say that we have good fellowship, we mean that we had a good time or that it was fun. Or that we left with warm feelings. None of this is wrong, but it is all quite removed from what the biblical writers had in mind. In the biblical world, the word fellowship was used of the relationship people had as a result of something they had in common. For example, there might be a piece of property that was jointly owned that in this way brought two people into relationship with one another. Or two people might have been in a business venture together. And in this, they had fellowship. It was the thing that they had in common. This is the word, common. The prop, they had the common property or the common business that tied them together. These people might, in fact, not have had much else in common personally. And he goes on to say they may not even have liked each other particularly. But because of their mutual interests... They work together for their mutual benefit. This is what fellowship is. So there's all kinds of different fellowship. I mean, in my, in my 
I've just joined uh, a gym to try to kind of get, keep my body in shape a little bit. And I have a workout partner. We have a workout fellowship, meaning we have a mutual interest. We want to get fit somehow as <laughs> best we can. We, we have a, a mutual or common enterprise. We go to the same gym we, and we lift weights. And then we, since we have the same, similar common interest, we hold each other accountable. We encourage each other. Hey, I'll see you on Monday, right? Yes, I'll be there. Let me text you. This is a, we enjoy this type of fellowship. So there's different types of fellowship. But right now, we're talking about what makes genuine Christian fellowship. It's a very distinct fellowship, right? What makes us genu have genuine Christian fellowship with one another? The more closer our fellowship is, the more unity we have. This is the issue. We, Jesus is trying to help us to be faithful because not only is the world coming after the disciples, the world is already after us right now, whether you know it or not. The world is against us. Okay, so, so what does Christian fellowship, genuine Christian fellowship look like? We're going to have just three points today. Okay, so kids, as you write in your notes now, we have three points today and on what genuine Christian fellowship looks like. So first point, first point is it, what is genuine Christian fellowship? It shares the same love for one another. All right, verse 12 says, this is my commandment that you love one another. All right, the one another's. There it is, the one another's. This is, as we talked about before, the one another's is just blowing my mind away. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus talks about the one another's. John talks about the one another's. Paul talks about the one another's. Peter talks about the one another's. I think James even talks about the one another's. And there's 40 plus one another's in the New Testament. What, is the, what are the one another's? This is basically how you're supposed to treat other Christians. Specifically, how you're to treat other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And here's some examples. I'm just going to rattle them off. You, you, you may recognize some of them. Honor one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. Accept one another. Be patient with one another. Exhort one another. Be kind to one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. There's more. There's more than that. But they're all throughout the New Testament and 40, there's the 40 plus one another's, they can be distilled to one, into one, one trait. It could be distilled into the word love. If you're to jam all that in, all those 40 plus, and just squeeze out a drop, love. Love is at the essence of all these one another's. A third of the one another's is love one another. A third, of, a third of the 40 plus is saying, we'll love one another. Why is love so central? Because love is a precursor. You love well, you'll do, these, you'll do these things. This is the motivation that drives us to bear one another's burdens. This is the motivation that forgives one another. This is the motivation that why we submit and serve one another. This is what this is about. This is about love. And this is what we're talking about today right from the get-go, love. Now, what type of love? Right here, the Greek word is agapao. This is not uh, love of eros, which is like a sexual or romantic love. This is not the love of the phileo or brotherly love. This is about the love of the will. This is I choose to love you. I choose no matter what, I am going to love you. This is the love of the will, all right? And so what does this love of the will look like? Verse 12, just as I have loved you. This is how we're supposed to love. And then going into verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. 
Jesus is talking about a sacrificial, a love that is sacrificial, the, a love that looks out for the interests of others over the interests of our own selves, right? As, you know, and he says, as I have loved you, John 10, 11 says this, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Love is sacrificial. When, and in verse 13, it says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life. Lay down your life, in essence, means I willfully die for you. I'm going to willingly die for you. I'm not murdered. I'm not, uh, I'm not dying out of my control. I am going to die for you. I choose to die for you. This is what Jesus is saying. No one coerced Jesus to the cross. No army or, or courts forced him to the cross. Jesus willingly allowed himself to die on the cross. So what does this look like for us today, right? This is like, okay, that's Jesus, but what does this look like today? Well, I mean, I'm talking to the brothers in here. I mean, if you're head of the household, I think to a man, all of us would like to say, you know, if someone were to break into our homes, right, and your wife and your children are sleeping, I think all of us would like to say, you know what, I'll die for my family if I have to defend them. You'll fight them tooth and nail, and, and if anything happens to the family, isn't it because you didn't like, do everything you could in your power? Yeah, I like to think we'd all say that. I mean, I like to think that, I, that I would actually happen if in that moment the Spirit of God would move us to be loving that way. Now, as I think about myself, I say, well, how about I start off with just washing the dishes once in a while, you know? How about, how about before I start thinking about I'm going to die for my wife and my kids, how about just being patient with them once in a while? Right? How about just being more considerate to them once? I, I mean, this is my own commentary, right? I mean, I don't know if this resonates with you brothers, but this is the things that comes into my mind. Yes, I will die for my wife. Well, let's just start off with just help out a little bit around the house. I mean, that, that helps, right? I mean, so, I mean, these perhaps, so some of these things, what could it look like? Yes, die physically for one another. Do you die to your privileges for the sake of the one another's? You know, do you, will you die for your perceived rights? You know, today, this whole word of fairness, that's not fair. Right? Maybe our younger members of our church could think that this is not fair, right? This is something we fight for, fairness. Maybe you're willing to sacrifice that so that you could bless other people. Maybe you would uh, sacrifice your prestige or your prominence at work so that you could bless somebody else. Right? Maybe you're not going to play that game. You're not going to lie, cheat, and steal to try to advance in your career. You're going to do it the right way. And matter of fact, you're going to help those who are persecuting you to be successful. Would you do that? Would you sacrifice your own promotion to help others out? That's a form of dying. That's hard. And I know many mothers, and we have incredible respect for mothers. I know many mothers in this congregation have sacrificed perhaps personal ambition to take care of their children. Wonderful. These are all forms of sacrificial loving. Perhaps husbands and you guys have sacrificed or didn't go for that job advancement because it's going to take you way too much out of the home too often. So you say, you know what? I'm going to prioritize my family. I'm not going to go after that. All right? Those are, these are all forms of sacrificial love. Now, as Jesus talked about being sacrificial to one another, you got to think about this. I always think about this, and you know, maybe this is the coach in me, but what is the enemy to loving sacrificially? What gets in the way, right? You want to know. Like, all of us, I hope, would say amen 
That's how I want to be. But what actually gets in the way? Right? So I'm going to turn to 2 Timothy. If you want to turn there, it's to your right. 2 Timothy, this is a pastoral letter written by Paul. And I'm going to read just a few verses here, starting from uh, chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3. And he talks about the end days, you know, to, or to, to her later days, in the last days. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy. And he, he's kind of talking about how certain pastors, certain church leaders would be like. He, he warns Timothy, his protege. But realize this, verse 1, chapter 3, 2 Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. How are times going to be difficult? Remember, we're thinking, how, what is the enemy to being a sacrificial lover of of others. For men will be lovers of self. All right, I'm going to go through this whole laundry list. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure than rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, this is the enemy here, lovers of self. And this is the disease that promote, uh, allows all these symptoms to come out in us. This is the, uh, the, 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 the pipe, the sewage pipe, that spews out all these other uh, 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 disgusting qualities. Lovers of self. Loving yourself, in essence, other words that we may use of lovers of self, otherwise known as like maybe self-love, self-esteem, self-worth, which also leads to self-centeredness. This is what the Bible's talking about. Are we struggling with being so self-centered that we become selfish? Selfishness is at the root of what holds us back from loving others well. Selfishness, because you think about yourself above others. How can you die? How can you be sacrificial if you're focused on numero uno? Yourself. How is that even possible? Just understand, Satan is a counterfeiter. All right, all-time counterfeiter. He'll use words like such as love and twist it so that we're just completely debilitated, so that we're just be inward thinking. Worldly love, okay, self-love is talking about, I love what you can do for me. I love how you make me feel. What can you do for me? You know, that, that, that's kind of the mentality, perhaps, if we're honest at times when we're in our, in, in our selfish modes here. And the world programs us to be about, all about me. I mean, just from our culture, from movies to pop psychology, promoting self-esteem and a man-centered approach to life. Even our technology has followed suit, right? We got the, what have we got? The iPhone, right? The iPad, we got the iTunes, we got the, in conjunction with the internet, we, we, we could create our own, our own universe. We could customize our own universe, really. Right? Think about it. You, you, you get to be at the center of, of your own self, and you could design the type of music library that you want. You could even get, uh, design your own photo libraries and movies, and you could even manipulate your photos so you look a certain way, right? Right, we know how to do that. And then the phones and the internet, we can even create our own social media universe to kind of create our own world. Think about how this is very self-oriented here. And I have had a few discipleship opportunities in the past, and one of the people I was actively discipling was 
you know, I asked them, you know, like, you know, it's important that you find a local church, right? You got to get plugged in. So, you know, you got to sit under good teaching of the Bible. You want to sit under good authority. You know, you want to be with other brothers and sisters so they could, you could, they could help you grow as a Christian. You, you want to be able to just be immersed in part of the body. And his response to me was this. I don't need to go to church. I said, how come? I said, I, I listen to sermons online. I listen to the best sermons online. I said, what? Which may be true. There's some world-class preachers available at our fingertips, which is a positive thing. But that doesn't replace church. In essence, he, started, he became a church planner, a cyber church planner. He, he created his own church. From the internet, he's able to pick his favorite teachers and, and, and preachers. And if he doesn't like what they're preaching, he could pre- pick the next sermon and pick his favorite sermon that what his heart is, is desiring to learn more about. So I'm going to listen to this. I don't even want to listen to that sermon by him, but I'll listen to this sermon by him. His own style of worship music. I, I, you know what? Uh, I don't like this style, but I'm going to pick a, create a library of my own playlists so I could create my own worship uh, playlist. And from there, he goes, you know what? I, you know, I could, I could listen to a sermon or even listen to these uh, worship songs even on my own schedule whenever it's convenient for me, whenever, whenever it works out. And as a matter of fact, I don't even have to even leave my home. I could be sitting from the comfort of my couch and I still could get my worship on. Somehow that becomes church for some people. And as you can see, this whole like, individualistic mentality has perhaps has crept into the church. I'm good. I got what I need. I could get everything without, without even messing with other people. I don't need other people around me. I, I could just get everything I need from my phone. Well, the issue is this. The more self-focused we are, all right, the more self-focused, the more absorbed we are with ourselves, the less other-focused we could be, the less focused we are on the one another's. This is a trap by the enemy to keep us focused. And I found this quote, an 18th century preacher named Samuel Johnson. I thought he just nailed it. This is the 18th century. This is 1700-something here. Samuel Johnson, this is what he writes. This is before iPhones. He that overvalues himself will undervalue others. All right, he understood this way back then. Self-love alienates men from God and from each other. Self-love is a supreme enemy of godliness and genuine friendship and fellowship. And this man kind of understood it, what he was talking about. So what's the answer? Let's turn to Philippians 2 here. And our hope is that we're able to look to Christ. That's the issue, but how do we, how do we handle this? Let's, go, let's turn to Philippians 2 here. This will be very clear. This is about Christ. We always want to look to Christ. This is, this is the theme of what we do. We want to look to Christ. Verse, two, verse 1 of chapter 2, Philippians. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, look at Christ, love. If there is any fellowship, there it is, fellowship of the Spirit. If any affection and compassion, make my joy Complete by being of the same mind, common mind, fellowship, maintaining the same love, common love, united in spirit, united, oneness, intent on one purpose, same enterprise, same purpose. This is what Paul writes. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the enemy, selfishness, being, uh, being, having vanity, empty conceit, being vain. Here's the answer. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, 
but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. As we look to Christ, what is the answer? Be humble. Be humble. This is, humility is the foundational virtue of a Christian. Why? Because you build upon this. If you're not humble, you're not able to build upon your Christian character. Humility is the foundation, and then you lay other characters on it. If you're not humble, it's impossible to love sacrificially. Impossible. Now, what is humility? All right, what is humility? That's an important question that we answer this. And I try to explain it to my family as best I can. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, man, I'm worthless, or, oh, I'm a loser, oh, nobody likes me. All right, that's, that's not what the Bible's saying. I mean, think about it. Man and woman are made in the image of God. Right there, you're elevated. If you're a Christian, Christ died for your sins, and he, that's the ultimate price in the universe. You're priceless. So it's not talking about, oh, I'm a loser and no one likes me. No, that's not true. So it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Being less self-focused. That's what the issue of humility is. Like as the Bible talks about, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Stop thinking about yourself so much. Think of others. This is humility. Humble people are outward thinking. Right? As Pastor John preached a few weeks ago, look for those to connect with, right? It's not saying I'm good. Like, look for others that you could connect with. Now, why is humility such an important thing that we talk about? Well, because you need it to love well. You need to love sacrificially. But also, it leads us to the next point, all right? So in genuine Christian fellowships, we love one another with the same type of love. But in genuine Christian fellowship, point number two it shares the same Lord with one another. We all have the same Lord. Jesus is Lord. That should be a mantra. That should be a truth that defines who we are. Jesus is Lord. That's the common confession of all Christians. All right, so let me just read verse 14. Going back to John, if you're, if you're following with me in, the, in, your, in your Bible or your, or your computer. Verse 14 of John 15 says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. What? How many friends do you know that has ever said that to you? I'll be your friend if you do exactly what I tell you to, always. You know, nah. So you cannot apply your own human friendships to Christ. Christ is at his own category. He's God. He's God after all. Jesus says, he qualifies friendship. You're my friends if you do what I command you. This is not the typical friendship, okay? As we learned about last week, love and obedience go hand in hand. If you love Christ, you obey him. It just happens. That's part of abiding. That's part of remaining in that relationship. I obey Christ. He's my Lord. Matthew 12 says this. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. When they came to say, hey, your, your brother and your, mother, your brothers and sisters, your mom's out there. No, who, who are they? Whoever obeys the father, whoever obeys me is the one I am in close relationship with. He's basically saying, but what kind of friendship is this? Verse 15 here. All right, let's follow along here. No longer do I call you slaves. All right. If you have the ESV or NIV, it probably says, no longer do I call you servants. All right, in the original language, I did some study here. All right. No longer do I call you doulos. Doulos means slave. 
That's what it means. Through, due to our cultural sensitivities, many people believe the translator kind of softened it up by saying servants or bond servants. But the word is slave. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Jesus is using uh, the picture of slavery here to get across a point to the disciples and to us too, 2,000 years later. Slavery was rampant in the Greco-Roman world. Rampant. It was everywhere. Um, it was part of normal life. Households had slaves. And I know we have a context for with our American history, a sad history of slavery, and also with human trafficking and all that going on today. You know, slavery was part of the world in the Greco world, Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago. Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says, this is kind of a startling stat that, or, that they, they claim, one out of two people were slaves in the Gre Roman Empire. One out of two people. And you may ask, why were there so many slaves? Well, I mean, Rome, the Roman Empire kept conquering and conquering and conquering. One huge reason is that these are prisoners of war. You conquered people, you're not going to just kill them. I mean, that, that's too cruel, but also that's what a waste, right? So it's like, oh, we make them slaves. And slaves, the role of the slaves were, were varied. I mean, from menial tasks, from being outdoors to digging holes to very skilled labor and skilled work, doctors, our physicians, lawyers. These are, these are highly trained, just like if California was conquered by, I don't know, a nation, you have the whole gamut. You have highly educated people, highly skilled people, and you have people who do, who do more menial work. It's just the spectrum's there. This is what the world of slaves looked like in the Greco-Roman Empire. So this is, this is what you, Jesus uses, slavery. Slavery was a way of life. Therefore, Jesus uses the metaphor to describe the Christian life as slaves. And for example, he uses in Matthew 18 and 20... 25 and Luke 19, slaves are true followers. He makes that connection. If a slave is a true follower, slavery, he also makes a connection to discipleship. John, who wrote the book of John and, and, and his epistles in Revelation 1 1, says, His slave, his doulos. All right? Paul, Romans 1 1 says, I am a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1, says, I am an apostle, slave and apostle of Christ. James, Jesus is a half little brother, younger brother. I mean, can you imagine calling your brother Lord or I'm his slave? He says this, I am a slave or doulos of God and of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, Jesus' other half brother, it says, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. So your translations may have bondservant, servant, but a slave. This is how the Christians identify themselves. They're a slave of Christ. This is who we are. All Christians are slaves of Christ. They understood this. And humility was required to be any type of slave. And what do slaves do? They submit it to their master. Right here in verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Master, 
Kyrios, this is Lord. This is the same word for Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's like saying Jesus is my master. Same word. Same weight. Same, same ownership. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord is, like I said, is a common confession of every Christian. Every Christian. He owns me. He's my Lord. I'm his slave. By you saying Jesus is Lord, you're basically saying I'm his slave. This is what Jesus is saying. We're all slaves of Christ. Now, I've got a question, you know, just for you to think about before we move on. I'm going to say this. Does this challenge anyone? I mean, are you sitting there thinking, well, this, is, this doesn't fit my self-image. Like, I'm not a slave to anybody. Does this challenge you right now? Does this challenge you right now? Well, let's look to Christ again. We always want to look to Christ. Anytime we're challenged, we want to look to Christ. Philippians, go, go back to Philippians chapter 2. Okay? Philippians chapter 2. I'm going, to read, I'm going to back up one verse again, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Be humble like Christ, as Paul said. Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, he's God. He's God. Paul saying, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What? But he but emptied himself, laid aside his privileges, Taking the form of a doulos. My translation says bondservant. Yours may say bondservant as well. He took on the form of a doulos, a slave. Paul writes by the power of the Holy Spirit, he calls Jesus a slave. He t- Jesus took on the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So if any of us are struggling with this, like, ah, like I'm a slave, look to Christ. Jesus became a slave. Our Lord became a slave. John 15, 20, just a few verses down from John 15, where we're at, he says that a slave is not greater than his master. All right, so if Jesus, our Lord or master, it became a slave, we're called to be slaves as well. We're not above that. Jesus is the one we look to. He humbled himself. We're called to be humble like Jesus. Serve one another. Love one another sacrificially. Now, in the, back to the Roman world, all right, I'm just going back, to, back and forth. This is a great uh, transition back and forth to the Roman world. How were the slaves treated? Well, the answer to that completely, all right, hear me out now. It completely depended on the master. Or the Lord. If he was a cruel Lord, you were treated cruelly. That's what it was. There was no re- Basically, there was no recourse. The master could do whatever he wanted with his slaves. He owned them like property. But if you had a loving Lord, you're treated like friends. And this is what it says right here in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, right? For I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Who else would we rather be slave to? 
I was talking to my friend the other day, and, and we, we both agreed, you're, you and I are enslaved to someone or something. Period. Something or someone is Lord of your life. And the gospel says that Jesus is Lord and that we get to be his slaves. I have called you friends. What does this mean? Back in the Roman world again, some slaves ascended. Some slaves were able to ascend. All right? And some slaves became closer than family members within the family. What do I mean by that? You know, I mean, during that time, culturally, wives were basically to bear children. The slave owners. Slave owners had concubines just simply for pleasure. There's no relationship there. Children, and sometimes a nuisance, slaves took care of the children. Some slaves will become the confidants of the slave owners. Some slaves will greet their master in the morning, get them ready for the day. They will start talking and become friends. Some of these slaves had total access to their master. They could see them at all times, anytime. Slaves like who were friends knew their Lord's heart. Right here in verse 15, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. This is a slave. Theologian, Scottish theologian William Barclay says this. This phrase is lit up by a custom practice at the courts, both of the Roman emperors and of the kings in the Middle East, talking about slaves who were friends. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. These are slaves. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchambers at the beginning of the day. He, this is the, the, the master or the king, he talked to them before he talked to his generals, before he talked to his rulers and his statesmen. These are his friends. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and the most intimate connection with him. Our Lord desires more than servile obedience. All right, he, he doesn't just want you to obey just because I said so. This is a relationship we're talking about. And this one of the things that we have in common in our genuine fellowship, we have access, same access to God. We have same access to, access to Christ. Same relationship. We're all slave friends to Christ. Now, you may be like, Pastor Rocky, like, uh, that's great. I'm learning about slaves and, and, and I'm a friend of God. I've heard that before. Perhaps I haven't heard that I'm a slave of God. Maybe you have. But what do I do with this twin truth? Like, what do I actually do with this, right? How does this help me live? Okay, and I have two points of application that may help. If today you're sitting right here, just think about yourself. Hopefully the Spirit will help you to look within and see where you're at. If today you're sitting in your chairs right now, listening to the sermon, and you don't take obedience very seriously. You don't really see Christ as your Lord. You don't really, you know what, I, I, why do I even need to read the Bible? Like, you know, God's forgiven me. It's God saved me by grace. I'm good. Maybe you think like that. I don't know. If that's you right now, I would meditate more on the slave relationship with Christ, that Jesus is Lord. Start to think deeply about this. Is this, what, is this what Jesus is saying? Is this right? Or is he making some kind of a big metaphor that doesn't apply? If you're someone that doesn't take obedience very seriously, Start thinking more deeply about your slave lordship relationship with Christ. Now, many of us, including myself, is point number two. 
If you do take obedience seriously, I mean, you take Christ seriously. You want to obey him. And, and, and whenever you let him down, when you, when you don't live up to the standard of Christ, you feel bad. You feel shameful. You feel guilty. You feel like that down in the dumps. I would say, as your pastor and, and Bible preacher, meditate on your friendship relationship with Christ. Jesus is your friend. Would friends be harsh and heavy-handed with you if you mess up? Or they, you know, you, the other day I missed a meeting that I had with some friends. I totally forgot. My wife had to call me and said, did you know you were supposed to meet with these guys? I said, oh my goodness. I said, I'm so sorry. Forget it. We're not going to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> You're out. No, none of that happened. They said, man, don't worry about it. You got, you're busy. They made excuses for me in some ways. Like, no, man, I should have been there. No, we should have sent you a text to remind you. Super gracious. Friends. But at the same time, I'm not going to try to take advantage of that. I felt so horrible, but I felt so blessed and restored in that moment. How about this? That was just, that's just in, this is just, just in one week. I don't know if you could relate. At home, I mean, I got, I've been having a lot of stuff going on. With, I'm so blessed to be part of church life. I'm trying to finish up my master's program online. And I've been, honestly, my children, I got four great children. They come, to, wanted to talk to me. They want to play catch. And I'm thinking, man, I got to write this uh, discussion board post. I got to post this up. And I'm thinking about reading a couple, uh, like 50 pages of stuff. And like, what? And, uh, does that ever happen to you where you're kind of harsh and kind of lack patience with your family members? That was me this week. I kind of felt down in the dumps the next, the whole day. That happened in the morning, and I felt, that whole day I felt kind of down. I need to think more about the friendship relationship. After repenting to the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. After repenting to my family, I, as I started studying this text, I started meditating on this. Like, man, you're my friend. I mean, think about it as parents. Your children do something crazy, which happens to all of us, I assure you. Is it like, you know what, you're no longer my son? Right? It's not, no, not, there may be some recourse, there may be some correction, of course. But they always be your son or daughter. Christ is our friend. So it's two sides of the same coin. Slave, friend. Slave, friend. Heads or tails. Same coin. Our Lord, lion and the lamb. Same coin. He's courageous and compassionate. Same coin. But both sides of the coin absolutely matter. Right? So I'm hoping one of the sides of the coin, if not a balance of it, ministers to you. You need to think about this. This is important. You want to be a fruitful Christian? You need to understand these two truths about our Lord. Okay, last and final point. Our Lord has a purpose for us. And in order for us to have genuine fellowship with one another, what does it look like? Genuine fellowship, relationship with one another? It shares the same mission with one another. We have the same purpose. One mind, one purpose. This is what this is about. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, Jesus says. None of us in here who are in Christ can say, I chose Christ. None of us. Bible says right here, Jesus sovereignly elected you to be his friend. You did not choose me, talking to the disciples, but I chose you and appointed you. Sovereign election. Just like in Jeremiah 1.5 where he says to Jeremiah, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb that you were going to be a prophet. I chose you to be a prophet. 
God chose you and me who are in Christ to be with him before even, before even time began. The Bible says in Ephesians, here's going back to the Roman world again, full of pictures that we might be able to understand. How did the slave master uh, gain his slaves? Well, he went to the slave market. There was a slave market. I'm going to, I choose you, and I'm going to pay a, a hefty price for you, and I gotta, I'm buying you to perform a role for me at home. Jesus chose us out of the slave market of sin, okay, handpicked you and me who are in Christ, handpicked that one, that one, him, him, her, her. I don't know, but he gets to choose. He handpicked each and every single brother and sister in Christ to do a specific purpose. And he paid a hefty price. He paid with his blood on the cross. That, how does that not lift your heart up for Christ? He handpicked you. We've been handpicked. And he, he paid full price for us. And our Lord, like I said before, wants to get what he paid for. And what did he appoint us to do? That you, it says in verse 16 again, would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. What is this job that he chose me to do? What is our shared mission? Matthew 28, 19, 20, before he ascends to heaven, gives the disciples a charge. It's called the Great Commission. Many of us would know this. This is what we've been called to do, to go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of men of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything or observe everything I commanded you. That's the point, what we've been appointed, to make disciples. And here's the good news. Lo, I am with you, even to the end of age. Jesus is with us the whole way. Our friend, our Lord, our master is with us the whole way. What is discipleship? Discipleship means that you're in a genuine or intentional relationship with one another for becoming more like Christ. Meaning, if you're a Christian, the relationships that you have some closer than others, I get that. There's some friendships that are closer than others and some relationships that are necessarily friends, but you're in intentional relationships with one another. So at Evergreen SGV, no matter how close we are with one another, we have this commitment, this obligation for one another that we're intentional with one another to help each other become more like Christ. That's what discipleship is. Your goal is the same as my goal. I want to become more like Christ. And discipleship is the central theme of the church. And, we'll, and by God's grace, we'll grow in that here at Evergreen. But discipleship is, is the central theme of the church. You're intentional about helping each other become more like Christ. We need each other. That's the point. You cannot live on your iPhone and say, I'm part of the church. That doesn't work. You need back and forth. You need touching one another. You need to experience each other's giftings. We need each other to experience each other's sins and confessions and temptations. We need to be able to learn how to forget because we're never like Christ more when we forgive others. We need to be wrong so that we can forgive. We know we, we got to be trained up in that way. These are all blessings, not hard, easy things, hard things, but we need these things. 
This is what Jesus is talking about. We need to be in genuine relationships with one another. Otherwise, discipleship doesn't happen. Otherwise, we're not faithful to what we've been called to do. Because when the world comes, next week we'll talk about the world, but when the world comes, you may not be faithful alone. Chances are you won't be faithful alone. In isolation, when the disciples burst from one another, Peter, unfaithful in that moment. So that's why we need to be together. At Evergreen SUV, what are we about? We need to be about evangelism. That means you're helping people come to Christ by preaching the gospel. And then we need to be about edification by preaching the gospel. This is what we're about. You can't disciple anyone if they're not in Christ. They can't become more like Christians if they're not in Christ. So you're helping people come to, to become in Christ. And then when they do, you help them become more like Christians, more like Christ. So this is what it's, this is about here. I'm going to review quickly and move backwards here. What are the distinct things that Jesus talks about general relationships? Going backwards, we have the same mission about discipleship. Number two, we have the same Lord. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We're slave friends to Jesus. And number one, he says we have the same type of love for one another, sacrificial love. I'm going to just read one verse to kind of close this off. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. It's a very familiar verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And this came to mind this week as I was just preparing. Very famous verse that many of us will know. This is a love chapter, but it ends up with this. But now, faith... Hope, love, abide, these three, remaining these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, why is love greater than faith and hope? Because someday in eternity, hear me now, someday in eternity, our faith will be realized. Like, wow, no longer. Faith is believing in things you can't see, the Bible says in Hebrews. We're going to be staring at Christ. We're no, I mean, faith is going to be right there in our face now. No longer need it because I can see what, I'm, what I've been believing in. Why is hope, why is love greater than hope? Because everything that we've been hoping for has been realized as well. We're living in eternity with Christ. This is what we're hoping for. And we're in the hope of glory, meaning we'll be perfectly glorified, similar to our Lord. But the one thing that will keep going on is love. When we see each other up in the... In, with our Lord, we'll still be loving each other. That doesn't change. You get my drift? Faith is realized in heaven. Hope is realized in heaven. Love, how you love one another, will be the same up there, but even perfect. Love remains. That's why I say love is the greatest of these. And as Christ closes us up in, in John, this, command, this I command you that you love one another. This is what this is about. If you want to be about eternal things, you love one another as Christ loved you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to preach on John 15. Thank you, Jesus, that you love your disciples so much. You love us so much that you would prepare us to face the world. You desire for us to be faithful to you, Lord. I thank you for the sacrificial love that you talk about, Lord. I pray for genuine relationships to take place. And Jesus, you call us friends. I pray, Lord, that the common friendship that we have with you would birth friendships. I pray for at least two or three close, close friends. 
for every single person here at Evergreen SUV. Whatever barriers, whatever cultural things, whatever schedule things, whatever those things are, please remove those things and, and, and give us, by your grace, two or three great friends that, that we could do life with, that we could disciple one of those that we could lock arms with to help each other become more like you. Father, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus, that you preach this message to the disciples when it's about to get really hot and it's about to get really hard. Then you say, Lord, you have me and you have one another. So thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.